Well, we talk a lot about the blank page, and I think it's a I think it's a super important conversation to be having right now because, you know, it's obviously it's very critical to the company, but it's also like, I don't know, I've come up, I, I've thought recently that maybe we might be stuck in a local maxima mm. in terms of like the tools that we've created, mm. you know, and nobody seems to be aware of the fact that like there's very, very, very little innovation yeah. <laughs> happening right. in our industry right now because it looks like you know like these tools are enhancing productivity and everything else but i, I don't think people even understand the magnitude of change that, that is possible hi there i'm evan troxel welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession ian keo welcome to the podcast it's great to have you thank you thank you so much for inviting me so I thought we could start off by talking about this concept that you guys, you and, and Anthony and Matt, you guys talk about this thing. I've seen several of your presentations. Obviously, we've met at the office and you've taken us through what, what you're doing at Hypar, uh, which we can get into more. But you have this unusual concept. I think it's kind of a, a mind bender when people first hear it because it sounds, it sounds simple, <laughs> but I think it has huge implications. And the idea of... We always start with a blank page, right? You've got this slide in your deck with a floor plan view from Revit. Every architect who's used Revit has seen this view, and you see the four elevation tags, and boom, there you go. Build some architecture, man. Yep. And I, I'll start by actually giving credit to Anthony because that's his. That's a deck that's been in his presentations predating even before we we started the company and we left Autodesk. And in fact, he he jokes that he used to have a version of that where it was the AutoCAD. It was just like the black AutoCAD with yeah, the cursors. Right. Um, because what and, and what he's trying to get at, and I think it's a really lovely and powerful idea, and it's and it's pretty fundamental to Hypar. You what we're getting at is this idea that um, everybody's just accepted that you just start from nothing. Like it's a brand new project, so let's just start from nothing. Yeah, obviously, right. And now with Revit, it's like, and let's build the building stick by stick, beam mm -hmm. by beam, column by column. Let's nudge things around. And nobody really takes the time to think about how much of that stuff is just stuff that they've done before on 10 projects or 100 projects. And like, what if you could actually take the experience and the capabilities that you have to do that stuff and turn it into sort of an automated <laughs> tool so that you didn't have to like build all that stuff by hand anymore. Right. It's a provocative way that we start our conversations because we want people to start thinking like, that's a big leap. That's a big leap forward for our industry. What would happen if we took that leap and what would the software look like that we would have to build to make that leap possible? Yeah, it's it's interesting thinking back to like the 90s when I was learning to code web, the web for the first time. I mean, we called it the internet. We didn't even call it the World Wide Web. And because it was just HTML, like the most basic building blocks, you got the body tag, you got the header tag, you, <laughs> you've got, you didn't, you had tables, you had table data, table rows, right? You, you didn't even have like div tags or anything back then. And it was literally the blank page. It was a text file. It was just what you're talking about. But look how far we've come with software. And, and then that's where you kind of take this conversation, right? When you're talking about go into a service provider and, and installing WordPress or, you know, some other yep. example of that, where it's like, you do not start from scratch anymore because like obvious, right? There's so many reasons why we don't start from scratch with all of these things. When you're talking about 
content management and you're talking about all these things on the web as a as a most basic example we're not really talking about design software right now but we're talking about the way that code has been packaged so that you don't start from scratch and and then you look at and compare that to architecture and it's like how how, how much has not changed that that concept that you're talking about is now loosely referred to as no code yeah right like all this and there's huge explosive growth in startups now looking at tackling no code and taking all the apis that are out there for dealing with different people's web services and giving you an interface where you can just couple those things together and make workflows without having to write any write any code at all and we we see these things every day we use these things every day as architects engineers contractors and real estate professionals but we don't think like what would a no code tool look like for our industry and when i say no code i don't mean like the tools that we have now for visual scripting and programming the dynamos and the grasshoppers mm-hmm. that's a kind of a that's an idea of a no code but when you really start to use those at any level of sophistication it's pretty much code yeah i mean anybody andrew human from our team just gave a a, a thing on your desk last night about data trees and like if you watch anybody present on data trees you quickly start to realize like it's code yeah so so when i mean no when i say no code i mean like how can we just um how can we my son is handing me candy nice which is amazing rainbow um uh i should get candy deliveries in the middle of every podcast (laughs) when you start to think about that in our industry like what would no code tools look like and hypar's take on this is kind of instead of thinking in the sort of granular way that we do now when we start writing grasshopper scripts or dynamo scripts or whatever, like take two points and connect them to make a line and then 10,000 nodes later, you've got something useful. Yeah. We, we think in terms of building systems, right? Like what's the entire decision tree that goes into building a facade? What are, what are all the rules of thumbs that go into generating a structural steel framing plan? I mean, these are all rules that we all use every day, right? And then you can wrap these things into a very high-level sort of no-code interface. So that's, yeah, that's that's kind of what we're looking at. Yeah, and it seems like those kinds of functions, and you know, I know that's what you guys call them, um, and we haven't really got into that, but it seems like the Dynamo Grasshopper thing, obviously that has been around for a long time, and so it's kind of a product of where it started on some level, so that you know the whole no-code thing has definitely come along later than or after those things began. But the whole idea with the high power stuff is that it can run in series or parallel or, right? And it's not like a grasshopper script where it definitely runs beginning to end discreetly, right? Yeah, so so when we started Hypar, we were really interested in some of the sort of emergent technologies around, you know, what they call serverless compute, which is, you know, the cloud service providers have started to abstract everything away from you. It used to be that if you wanted to start a web service, you had to like go out and buy servers and racks yeah. and put them in a closet in your building and then open up a pipe to the internet. And you just don't have to do any of that anymore. And as that process of abstraction has progressed, now you just send some code to Amazon yeah, <laughs> and they'll run it for you. Yeah, And they'll run it once or they'll run it 10,000 times. It doesn't matter. They'll just charge you for however many like, little compute instances they have to spin up in order to run that code. And so we thought, you know, all of the software that you use right now, design authoring software for architects and engineers is all single threaded desktop software. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you anything you do in one application that needs some output that goes into another application blocks your workflow while that thing is running. Yeah. Dynamo, you set it to run, it blocks your workflow. Grasshopper, same thing. So like, you know, what would a, what would an architecture look like where you could like fan out and spin up as much compute as you need to calculate a thousand simultaneous 
you know, variance on something. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of baked into hype R as well. Yeah. It's, it's funny because that that's a paradigm shift or it's a mindset change from in an industry that doesn't like to change its mind. You're talking about the drafting table where my tools are right here, right now. These are the only tools that matter uh, on this whole project. You know, if you're doing it yourself or even on your team, they're probably going to be sitting right around you and you're borrowing someone's eraser shield, but you've got your own triangles. You've got your own parallel bar. You've got your own pencil. Big picture. It makes me think of how like FM radio and a terrestrial TV signal, you actually have to have specialized equipment to access those things now. Like we've completely flipped where those things used to be the only way people saw or heard things, right? You would tune it in on the radio or you would turn on the TV and you didn't need any, that was not specialized equipment. That was stuff that everybody had. But now phones and computers are more ubiquitous than those things, right? Yep. And so now uh, you don't have to tune in when something happens, right? Like when I was a kid, we tuned in to watch the, the shuttle launch, right? Yep. Like I was in a band. We tuned in to listen to see if our song was played on the radio. And one time it was. And that was an amazing moment. But it only happened right then. And, and so now everything is time shifted, right? A absolutely everything. Even the stuff now, now you're talking about compute is time shifted, right? Like it's happening somewhere else by other things. And so so what's happening to FM and what's happening to TV is now happening to software. And it's app stores, it's cloud computing, it's high part. Like this is exactly what we're talking about. It's scalable computing in the cloud. You can access it from any device because the devices are everywhere, ubiquitous, right? And and all the major, the heavy lifting is done somewhere else. And so yep. you don't need any high-powered computers. You don't need any expensive computers. You could do it on a tablet because all that stuff is happening elsewhere. Which is actually one of, I think, our, our bigger and more interesting challenges because the whole sort of, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll lump manufacturing into this as well. Like when, you know, mechanical modeling software of which Revit is part of that history of software traditionally required a big beefy computer. And as mm -hmm. Revit models have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, we've just said like throw bigger computers at it. So, you now have these like eight core, 16 core. But the, <laughs> the funny thing is like Revit doesn't use a lot of those cores. We have these, you know, uh, Peter Boyer, an ex colleague of mine from the Dynamo team, used to say like there is a supercomputer under every desk yeah you know like there is a super a literal supercomputer under people's desks that supercomputer is utilized for eight to ten to twelve hours a day depending on uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the work life that you you have right and then it's not being used the rest of the time and even while it's being used it's all it's it's super underutilized yeah even if you're throwing you know a terabyte of revit data at it the, the thing in terms of what it can do, the number of billions of calculations it can do per second is super underutilized. So so part of Hypar is also just like, can we be smaller and lighter and faster and scale in a different way than imposing the requirement on people that they have to have, like they have to sit by this space heater mm -hmm. that also happens to do compute? Yeah, it's kind of like your car, <laughs> right? Like you're, you use your car so little and you pay so much for this thing that sits around most of the time right? Yeah. It's very, it's an interesting paradigm. So I'm wondering like, how do you guys talk to people about that? And because go, getting back to that mindset change where my tools sit on my desk and that's translated into my computer sits on my desk and all the brain power is right here in this room. How, how do you start to shift that conversation to help people understand what, 
how the landscape is changing. Yeah. So, so one of the things, one of the things, just to tie back to your earlier comments about like the the kinds of systemic changes that are happening is that, and that idea of like I'm surrounded by all the tools I have, and I have all my tools that I need, and I can do everything just here with these tools. Mm-hmm. That's like a that's like a self perception problem in our industry that I think is is one of the things that will be a generational change that needs to happen in order for uh, technologies like Hypar to be adopted. This idea that like your value as an architect is tied up in your ability to do the work by hand. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very sort of, I don't know, I always refer to it as part of the Beaux-Arts tradition. It probably goes back much further than the Beaux-Arts. And then on top of that, we've kind of built this business system, which is which is this consulting model. So you are, in fact, paid also for the amount of time that you can apply yep. to a problem. Right. And you just look at any other industry and and you talk to any uh, anybody involved in business, and they say, figure out a way to make money that doesn't require you being there right. to make money. And and architects, we've we've been resistant to that because we have this notion of like architecture as a sort of as an art and a science. And and you know, I my background is in architecture, so I'm I'm a hundred percent sympathetic yeah. to all of this. But I also just feel like we we were kind of like on the back of the bus, and then the bus sped up. And then we kind of like fell off the bus and now the bus is like speeding away and we're running like in the movies, you know, and the guy's like running down the street. He's like trying to jump and grab the back of the bus. And we're like, now we're getting far enough that like we can't even grab the bus anymore. And the bus is just like accelerating over the horizon. And we're, you know, our profession is going to be be left behind if we don't come to terms with some of this. So that idea of like generational change, I want to get inside the heads of like the 21, 22, 23 year old you know, maybe undergrad who's coming out into the field and is going to do a couple years before they go back to graduate school. Like, what are they thinking their work life is going to be like? And I already know on in terms of the things that they do day to day, like the collaboration and the sharing and everything else with the with all the apps and social media and stuff that they use, that's going to be totally different. But when they're like to get right down to it, like what are the tools they're going to use in practice? And I think the idea to them that maybe their workflow in the future looks like a big tablet and they're just working anywhere. Yeah. And, and that thing is doing all its compute in the cloud and giving you, you know, like real time visualizations as that compute is happening and you're live collaborating with other people in that same modeling environment. And then you're quickly popping into an AR VR, like real time simulation because all the data is made in such a way that that's like super easy to do. And you're not like going into an office every day and sitting down with this supercomputer and your three giant monitors and and everything else. I would really like to see if that's like a, a picture that they paint for themselves of the future. Yeah, it's interesting because there's so many times where you could lead them down that path of coming up with that exact scenario. Or you can ask that question very open-endedly and just say, you paint that picture for me. And and it would be interesting to see what they come up with because I think I think you're onto something there because you basically described the exact setup that I'm staring at right now. You know, I've got three monitors in front of me. I've got this MacBook Pro that's a supercomputer, and the amount of compute that I use of it that I ask of it is very small compared to what I actually need because of all this other stuff that's happening. As long as I'm connected to the internet. Yeah, it's interesting because because uh, like that that visual that you kind of painted the picture of of the architect running behind the bus. Do you think architects see it that way? Do you think they're aware of that? I know that they're aware of it. 
but I also feel like a lot of architects and engineers, like let's say consultants in AEC that we've talked to, they, they just seem kind of powerless to do anything about it. They feel powerless to do anything about it. It's always kind mm -hmm. of like when you when you talk to people about technology, they're like, yeah, this technology is cool and all, but ultimately the city is only going to take, you know, plan PDFs and yeah. legally I'm not allowed to do this. So like my my other consultants are always going to have to rebuild the model because like I don't want to take responsibility for the, the model. And it's like they'll tell back to you like exactly the things you know about the industry and that I experienced when I was you know working in the industry it's it's few and far between the people who can like really believe that there's something past that something that's going to that's going to break that apart but i'm i'm still looking i'm still i'm trying to paint that picture for them so like if the picture yeah. if the people can't pick the, paint the picture for themselves and i totally understand that like if you're working 60 hours a week and you're underwater on projects you're just like trying to survive you're just trying to get the yeah. drawings out the door satisfy your customer i totally get it the beauty part of my sort of leaving industry and going to Autodesk was that I could suddenly walk to the top of a very tall hill and survey the landscape. The, mm -hmm. the challenge for architects and engineers is that they're down in the weeds, like they're down in the muck and the mire, like trying to get things built and just they can't be concerned. You know, they just don't have time to go up and survey the landscape and sit back and imagine like, what could this, what could this be like? So I guess that it kind of feels like a very personal responsibility that I have and, and that all everybody who's joined Hypar has because we're fortunate. We're fortunate to be in a position where we can be doing this right now, whether it works out or not. Yeah. I don't know. But like we got to take a shot. You know, we've all identified ourselves as like you look at our team, like Andrew Human came out of WeWork where he was doing mm -hmm. like all the all the sort of automation of like office layout and stuff. Cause we work was all about like, how do we turn a space into a, we work as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And so he, he did the same thing because he used to be at NBBJ and you know, so he came out of practice and went into like this other version of practice. Now he's like, okay, wait, there's, there's something else here. So we're, and we're all like that. All of us, you know, are of the same class of people. This makes me think of two things. It, it, it makes me think of how architects are trained, firstly, uh, because we're all trained to be kind of self-sufficient. Even the the NCARB testing is is all about being a solo practitioner, right? And we've all got our <laughs> yeah. own tools, and we all do it in our own space, and 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 it comes from the the glorified mind of the architect. And like, there's lots of cultural kind of ramifications to kind of the the entire way the system is set up, right? Uh, and then they're not trained as tool builders. They're trained as problem solvers. But what you've done is you've transitioned from being a problem solver to becoming a tool builder. And you say a lot of these architects that you talk to feel handcuffed, like they're way, they're at the mercy of X, Y, and Z because they're not, I guess, because they're not building tools or they don't have time to build the tools or they're not incentivized to build the tools or, you know, there's lots of reasons why. And we can definitely understand that. So that transition that you made from becoming like problem solver to tool builder seems to me like what a lot of the younger generation is already set up to do maybe a little bit better at least than what we were. Well, I mean, we it certainly through. could be, I, look, I mean, I've recounted to, I, to some people when I first started programming the Revit API, I was like fresh out of graduate school. And it was like my first structures job at Bureau Happold. They put Revit like a boxed copy of Revit because it saw uh -huh. boxes at the time 
on my chair and they were like, we're doing this stadium and we're doing it in Revit and all the drawings have to look exactly like all our drawings have looked for 20 years and like, and it's complex geometry and all this stuff. And this is like Revit structure one. And when the API first came out, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Like there were no instructions. There was like no documentation. There was none of this stuff. There wasn't like, okay, I'm going to teach myself to code. Like, where do I go to learn how to code? You know, there wasn't the number of resources that there are now, you know, if, if these, if the graduating generation now don't already have exposure to program, which a lot of them have gotten now through elementary school, middle and high school, then they're certainly, they have so many resources that they can go to, you know, now to learn this stuff. You want to learn how to program Python or C sharp or JavaScript or whatever. There's a zillion different ways you can, you can learn that. So I'm happy to I'm happy to see that. But I also think like, you know, if we're not teaching that stuff in school, if the idea of being a tool builder isn't something that you're you're also learning in school, your perception of what the industry is, is going to be is going to look very much like what you learned in school. And then it's going to look very much like what you learned from your experience at the first firm you worked at. And so one of the things that we're interested in is getting people thinking computationally, young students thinking computationally and using a tool like Hypar or using any sort of computational earlier on in the process and thinking of themselves as tool builders. That idea of, I had riffed on this idea of this local maxima. Yeah. And what I meant by that is that I think people are looking at all the workflows in AEC right now and they see stuff on Twitter and other social media you know, where I've transferred this geometry from this application to that application, or I've built this thing that generates all my facade panels with crazy louvers, and I've done all this stuff. You know, people in our industry tend to look at that stuff and think, ooh, that's innovative and cool and neat and everything else. And a lot of them don't realize that's the same stuff we've been looking at for 15 years. Yep. And and so my my thinking there was that we've reached this kind of local maxima. Like, we're, we're all in this place where we think we're at like the apogee of technology and, and uh, interop in our industry. But uh, again, a lot of these people haven't had the benefit of climbing to the top of the hill and surveying the entire landscape and realizing like we're in this tiny little village, <laughs> you know, or I've yeah. described it to some people as like an island of our own technology, technology of our own making. And the rest of the world is just kind of accelerating away. So that's also part of like Hypar is like, you know, can we take some of the benefit of that technology that's been developed in these other sectors and like bring it back into AC yeah. so we're not in this cul-de-sac that we've created of our own tools? Has that been successful at all? Have you guys been able to have those conversations with people outside? And I mean, part of it is awareness of, of whatever you're exposed to, but part of it, I'm sure just kind of. Are, is anybody coming to you with that and saying, I think that this would be useful where you're where you're operating in? Yeah, because we're not uh, in full disclosure. Like when we started the company, we started thinking about like, who are going to be our customers? And we thought, OK, yeah. architects, because Anthony has an architecture background. I have an architecture background. We were hiring architects. And it turned out like that is not going to be your first customer because architects mm. have this kind of like existential hand wringing going on right now around what the future of the profession is and how technology is going to impact that. But there are plenty yeah. of other aspects of our industry right now that are super excited about this. So like contractors, developers, building uh, product manufacturers, you know, like the build, big building product manufacturers of the world who who want to deploy more of their stuff and are looking at buildings as a manufactured product, as an increasingly manufactured product. I mean, like go on any job site now, 
and you see like the stairs are prefabricated, the elevators and all the elevator equipment is prefabricated. More and more of that stuff is built in factories by various suppliers. And so those suppliers want to have their stuff specced and generated. So, so we think that architects will be kind of like fast followers, but those other groups have come to us and said, look, we have an expertise in this kind of specific building design. Our customers are asking us to just generate them a version of that kind of building, whether it's a hospital or a parking garage or whatever. Yeah. We want to embed our expertise in how that thing gets generated and costed into some software. And we want to and we want to just generate it because we're not worried about what that means for the future of the profession. And, and all right. This other stuff. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because it aligns with what, you know, customers or clients are looking for they they're so they're used to buying things they are they buy houses that way they yeah. buy cars that way they buy everything that way and what they don't buy is processes they don't buy me going through a design process hardly ever right like they might do a, a project at home on the weekend in the garden but they don't typically i mean if, if somebody does they probably do it once right and build their their quote-unquote dream house or they participate in the design of picking out the materials for their spec house or whatever. And, and so they're very much on the, you know, that's a scary proposition. Number one, to take that much time to do it. And number two, to spend my life savings doing that where there's other people out there who are in the building business and this is what they do every single day. And, and even they want to buy building product, right. And not necessarily capital A architecture or capital D design, or maybe if they do, it's a, a single, you know, it's the lobby. I don't know. Well, and I don't know that we would have been having this conversation even, you know, 10 years ago. Because, you know, 10 years ago, if you had asked somebody, like, could a building be made like any other manufactured good? They'd say, well, of course not. You have to big a, dig a big hole in the dirt, and then you got to slop it full of concrete, and you got to do all this, like, messy, noisy stuff. But but I think what we're seeing, and 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 by the way, I'm not, like, a huge fan of, like, the let's build a skyscraper in 14 days. And it's like this yeah. terrible, boxy, awful thing. Like, right. I'm, that's not what I'm advocating for. But I think what's happening is over time, our ability to deliver more and more of buildings as manufactured, um, as manufactured products is increasing such that what's left that's not manufactured, at least offsite, is like the slabs. Yeah. And even those, yeah. you know, are being manufactured now as well. So it's about manufacture, it's about assembly, and the people who do that kind of stuff, for them, it's just about efficiency. You know, how can I, I delivered 10 projects last year, I want to deliver 20 projects next year. How can I specify those projects? How can I design those projects? How can I fabricate those projects? And how can I install or construct those projects? And for them, technology is all about, like, increasing that efficiency. But you're right. I mean, that, that idea that like this is how we we get everything else, you know, like yeah. your iPhone is like a is like a it's like a manufactured good. Your Tesla is an incredible manufactured good. Your building will one of these days be just a much larger, more expensive manufactured good. Well, if you think about the market that architects service, for the most part, it's, you know, the data shows that that has been presented on online by places like dark matter labs and like think tanks who are doing this kind of research say that we are doing the, the architect is involved in 1% of worldwide building industry 1% who pays for that the the other, the other 1%, 1%. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So we're doing 1% for 1%. Granted, that 1% has most of the money, right? But that's, that's our client. But look at what's being left off the table there. You're talking about the people who buy products. Like that's you're talking about the people who do not buy architecture. <laughs> you're talking about people who buy products. And at some level, like you're saying, it's going to meet in the middle. It not every space has to be bespoke, and not every building has to be like a Toyota Corolla, right? Like it's it's somewhere in the middle where architecture can be more cost effective and happen faster and be more in line with people's pocketbooks, people's expectations about speed, what they're willing to live in, but also make their lives better, right? Like to me, the, the value of architecture is that it, it it's an enabler for a better society. And so if we could somehow meet in the middle there, I think like you're, you're actually no longer fighting over like who gets a bigger percent of that 1%. You know, everybody's whittling down within that 1% margin instead of looking at everything else that's out there. So, so part and parcel with this, I think, is, you know, that, that whole 1% thing, which we all talk about, has to do with access. And part of that access is just money, right? Yeah, you have a lot of money, yeah. you can pay to build a nice building. Part of it is access to technology. Part of it is access to resources and information and everything else. So, so you could look at like what we're doing and you could say, well, if you, if you really believe in this and you really think that buildings are going to become a manufactured good and like that's where we've got to go, why don't you become one of these super vertically integrated companies like a Katera and go out mm -hmm. and raise, you know, gads of money and, and go and try and tackle that problem of like, okay, this type of housing, I'm going to build this in my factories and da, 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 da. Why are you doing software at all? You know, because software is... And I and I'm doing we're doing software because I still think that software has a hugely democratizing potential in in our industry and especially software that is available to anyone for a very, very low cost. You know, traditionally, if you want if you were involved in one of those big building projects and you you OK, now you're going to do BIM and you've got to buy lots of Revit and don't get me wrong, Revit is incredible piece of software and it's probably worth on most projects what people pay for it but you're the guy building a two-story you know cinder block building maybe with a timber frame you know mm -hmm. or maybe it's a cinder block reinforced cinder block building like you see in so much of south america and it has seismic requirements do you have a local engineer that can calculate that for you just give like the most basic assessment of the seismic performance of your building what if you don't what if you right. could just like, and, and this is where people get super nervous when I talk about this, because they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa you're talking yeah. about delivering that online as like an expertise. What if, what if, yeah. you know, what right. if you were, what if you need, you were in sub-Saharan Africa someplace and you needed, like they do, you know, a school, they need thousands and thousands of schools, little schools. You say, okay, how many rooms does it need to be? Like, what are the local materials that you have? Like, is there some software process by which we can generate a design for that thing. And like you say, it's not capital A architecture, but it's accessible. And what if that person could do that from, and, and here's where the, the, the rest of the sort of economics comes around, which is super interesting to me is like, we talked about like iPhones, right? Like the iPhone mm -hmm. could cost $10,000 and like rich people could own iPhones, but they don't like yep. they've driven the cost of the iPhone down to a place where the primary iPhone market is for the use and eyes of the world. The secondary used iPhone market is for the rest of the world. 
This yeah. supercomputer that I hold in my hand, and for those of you who can't see, I'm, I'm holding up an iPhone 6S Plus, which probably seems ancient to people now. This thing is incredibly powerful. It runs Hypar, right? Yep. So you are this person who's building the school or the person who's building the two-story cinder block, you know, reinforced building in South America someplace. You want to just like pull this up and access this wealth of building expertise provided by a community across the world and you don't ever want to call them or pay them for that service. Yeah. And and that's that's the effect that that software has. It has that ability to give people access because all of those people now have this device and to an increasing extent those people also have access to the internet. Yeah. It's uh, it, it this falls right in line with Suskin's book, right? Talking about the disintermediation of the gatekeepers. Yeah. And that's why people are so uncomfortable with having this conversation because you know, that's happened to somebody else, but I don't want it to happen to me. So it, it's happened to doctors. It's happened to lawyers. It's happened to, you know, accountants that, you know, you've got TurboTax online, you've got WebMD, you've got LegalZoom, you've got like all of these platforms <laughs> that you're talking about where everybody goes for information, everybody, right? Instead of going to the previously only place you could go, which was the professional to get that information. But the point they make, and that, that book is amazing, and you should definitely put it in the show notes, the point that they make is that you're not going to LegalZoom for some highfalutin legal construct that you need to come up with and invent. You're going to LegalZoom to get like a contract. You know, yep. yeah, you, you know, you just want to enter into a, like a little business contract with somebody. Stuff that they're pretty, it's pretty like, I don't want to say low risk, but it's not the it's not the high dollar work that they right. that has the high margin, right? And so that yeah. same thing's going to happen in buildings. The, the, mm -hmm. When I these examples that I give, like generating parking structures, <laughs> there's right. plenty of stuff in the built environment that is just like look at America's crumbling infrastructure. Right. We need bridges, you know. We need all kinds of infrastructure. We need parking garages. We need and then you kind of climb up from there into other things that are like very, you know, um, amenable to sort of procedural generation. We need lots of hospitals. We need. So so I don't I'm not even really worried about capital A architecture. And it, but it, it, yeah. it is one of the things that like, you know, when the guys when we're talking about like functionality, we're going to add to the platform. We're all like, oh, should we add like deep rhino integration so we can do, you know, all the cool stuff that rhino can do and everything else. And it's like. So Hypar is not going to be used on any Zaha projects anytime soon. Yeah. And that's 100% okay because there's right. so much other. That's like the tiniest little percentage of all the work that's out there. Yeah. It's funny because you're, you're there, on the micro level, you're talking about like if you're working on a project and you can automate something, whether it's the parking layout or the bathroom layout or the stairs or whatever, right? Like I, I, I want to use the stair tool, right? I don't want to build everything by hand. So that I can focus on more important things. You're talking about that at the macro level for the profession. You're talking about, but but what's nice is that it enables the profession to touch more things. So it enables the profession to touch more things. But I also want to challenge this notion, and, I, and I'm challenging it because I've used it before. This idea that like, if we start using technology, we can go and focus on more interesting things. I say this because it seems like the logical and I and I hear other people saying it, too, because it seems like the logical conclusion that if you don't have to, like, toil at doing things yeah. as manually anymore, that you would go off and do other interesting things. But there's another version of this, which is even scarier to contemplate, which is not that, like, the architecture profession changes so that architects are doing new, crazier, more interesting stuff. 
it could just be that there's less architects, significantly fewer architects. Or those architects are doing less things, right? Like they're not replacing that time with, with more interesting problems or other types of projects. They're just doing less, right? Because the thing is doing more, which is kind of the promise that computing has always had for people, right? Is it's going to do this thing so that you don't have to, and you're going to fill that extra time with leisure. Yeah, right. How's that <laughs> And that out? doesn't jive with our profession. <laughs> Yeah. So okay. So wait, let's take let's take the leisure bit off the table because that's that's one hundred percent. We've demonstrated that we're not going to take technology up on that that benefit. Right. But that's where the, the you know where this where this conversation gets really really tricky is when you say you know what if this what if these kinds of technologies just dropped a huge rock in the pond and the and the the outward rippling effect was that you needed half as many architects. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that is automation across the board. I mean, I remember following like Andrew Yang's campaign trail talking about automation and truck drivers. And, you know, that was his main audience that he was really going going after for a long time. And he was he was like talking about what do you do when you you will not drive a truck anymore? Right. Because automation is coming because robotics is coming because they're going to automate factories. They're going to do automate the transportation system. And his answer was you're going to have to reskill and do something else. We have a decades-long example of this happening in our in our country in the in in the form of agriculture. You know, yeah. through the '60s, '70s, and '80s, we became so good at producing so much food with so few farmers yeah. through technology. That, right. But and and this I think is a is an interesting map to architecture. We in some part maintained this notion, this perception of ourselves as like an agricultural society, you know, yeah. like in the middle right. of the country, if you travel across the middle of the country, people still think of this as like the, this is the the heart of the country where all the food is produced and everything else. But in fact, there's like a, 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 a tiny, tiny little fractionally small number of people actually producing all that food. Mm-hmm. And of course, then we subsidize, you know, farmers right. to produce corn right. that we can't sell and, so we try and figure out all these other places to put corn and you get high fructose corn syrup and everything. Else. I wonder if there's right. some, I'm going to paint a very bleak version of the future, but you, you led, it's your Do fault. It. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I wonder if there's some future in which, because we still view ourselves as these kinds of artists, that technology just takes half the jobs away. And, you know, we spend a, we spend a generation like trying to figure out how to, how to reimagine ourselves as architects. Yeah. It takes me back to college. It takes me back to people who are in the program who it was obvious they weren't happy there. They shouldn't have been there. Right. But they they had that sunk cost mentality like architects do. Right. Which is, man, I've already put two years into this. I got to finish it now, even though I'm completely miserable. I I always wonder, like when, when you're talking about like if it completely decimates our profession from like, are there lots of people who should just not be in it anyway? I mean, that's kind of a painting a, a similarly dire picture. Oh man, you're going to give me a real trouble be... for trying to answer that question. But I think <laughs> I, I, I think what will happen is if that transition takes hold and if technologies start to erode away that sort of gatekeeper status, like you're saying, yeah, the cream of the profession will innovate and figure yeah. out what is next for architecture because that's what the innovators in any profession do. And everybody who's below a certain line will just go away. They'll, they'll go do something else 
for a living. Yeah. And and it'll get more crowded at the top there too, or it'll get more um more competitive at the top there. Because when you start, to, you know, imagine the last days of the the horse drawn carriage. <laughs> You know, as cars yeah. came on the scene, but farmers were still taking their stuff to market in a horse-drawn carriage because they couldn't afford a car yet. But they saw the car was there, and they would go to their buggy manufacturer, like, "Am I going to buy a new buggy? If so, what's his innovation versus this guy's innovation? Like, what's the what's the penultimate sort of like buggy right. manufacturing technology that I should invest in now because my next purchase is going to be a car? There might be a version of that. Yeah, it def- it could be. I mean. It is the the future is in the hands of the innovators and it is the people who are willing to maybe stick their neck out and actually give that a go. It, I, I've always been a big proponent of kind of designing your own future instead of waiting around for it to be handed to you, right? Because then you're at the mercy of whoever designed it for you. And maybe they didn't have you in mind, right? It's there's there's this this analogy that I used in a in a talk that I gave and it was, you know, I'm a rock climber. So you go climb a rock and you fall off the rock and the rock you, you get it happens all the time, right? And, and guess what? Like the rock doesn't care, <laughs> right? It's not just going to let you climb it. The profession's the same way, right? Like it's it's you you're going to have to put in the blood and the sweat and the tears and create the path forward, or do a bunch of fitness so that you can accomplish the thing, like the really hard rock climb, and and actually beat the rock because like it's not just going to let you do it. And and we see this with Katera. We see this. We saw this with WeWork. Like. I remember sitting in a in a presentation with Katera and it, and somebody asked a question at the end. Hey, what about the architects? <laughs> and it was clear, like he didn't say this, but the answer was, what about them? Right? That was the answer. But he didn't say that because that wouldn't have been politically correct to say in a room full of architects, right? But it was definitely the writing is on the wall. It's like, well, we're not doing this so that I so that architects have a future. We're doing this for us. Yeah. I sometimes wonder when you when you when you're inhabiting a space and you recognize that that space is really nice and you try and think about like what are the qualities that make that space really mm-hmm. nice i'll, I'll mm-hmm. use an example that you might be familiar with the the the, the lobby area there at hmc when i came to visit you mm-hmm. it was kind of like getting towards dusk like the sun i'm trying to think which way the sun was going yeah the sun goes down over the ocean so the sun was kind of slanting into that area and it has this kind of like polished concrete floor and it's a double height space. And it just felt right. kind of nice and serene. Yeah. And you have like these kind of, I don't know if they're like vertical slats or something on the window, some sort of scrim or something that like, you know, made the made the light quality a little bit different. And when you sit in a space like that and you think like, this is a very nice space. And this was thought about by an architect. Could yep. we, can we encapsulate the qualities of that space in an algorithm that can generate a space that performs in the same way. That's the big question that everybody's worried about, because if you can do that, there's one thing, it's one thing to like, just say, yes, we can lay out your floor slabs and we can generate your stairs and we can like do all this algorithmic stuff. Right. But the thing that I think people are most worried about is like, what if you could actually, you know, generate a space that had those kinds of unmeasurable qualities, Yeah. you know? And maybe it's not like the 100% best space you've ever been in, but it, maybe it's like, you know, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. 5% of like the best kind of space you could be in. So what's the answer? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, the, the challenge, I'll, I, don't, I don't know the answer, but I do know that the challenge is the real vanguard in terms of technology in our industry 
are going to be the architects and the engineers and everything else who say, yeah, you know what? I'm done with doing this the traditional way. I've done this the traditional mm-hmm. way for 10 years or whatever. It's time for something better. Or I'm I'm entering into the profession right now and I'm not ready to do this in the in the way that everybody's done it before. And and they put aside their misgivings about starting that conversation. You know, they put aside yeah. their misgivings yeah. about ever engaging with anyone about saying about postulating that maybe you know, we could generate high quality spaces that didn't require, you know, to be a bespoke creation of the architect. Mm-hmm. And and I'm starting to see that happen. And it's almost across the board, the 25 to 30 year old cohort that we talk to who are like, they've been out in profession long enough now to see kind of, they know the lay of the land and they're like, wow. Yeah. You know, I have another 30 years of this. Right. You know, I just don't want to like yep. lay out ducks by hand anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because you've got people in the profession who, I mean, our profession, like when do you actually hit your stride in this profession and do what you want to do? I mean, you can see lots and lots of examples that it's not until you're 60, right? Or 55. And and then, and only then have you built up enough cred and experience and all the things that it requires. and. I mean, talking about experience, especially like how to live, what does make a space feel good? What, what are those qualities? And can a 25 year old answer that? Right. Like, like on some level, no, like the answer is no. And on some level it's like, well, they're going to try and where you're not willing to try and do the other thing, they're going to try to do it all. And that's what I, I see is like the most threatening piece to the way architecture is practiced right now is that. Like no one's no one's just waiting around for permission anymore. I'm totally generalizing, but like they're just going to take the reins and go for it, right? They're not going to ask for permission. They're just going to do. Yeah, and what needs to happen is they need to do and fail. <laughs> they need to do yeah. and fail, and hopefully they do it and quickly learn. and fail, and then learn. And they'll learn like, oh, I understand. Like a certain amount of the the challenge here was in some problem that I hadn't foreseen because I didn't have the experience to know, you know, every day, because if you're a software startup, you know, in AEC, every person you talk to wants to talk about flux, you know, Mm -hmm. and I (laughs) still, I think still, and I think flux's idea was amazing and it was way ahead of its time. And it was exactly what they were supposed to be doing, which was like saying, you know what, this is a big hairy problem, but we are like, we think we're going to solve it. We're a bunch of smart people. I think one of the places that they one of the reasons that they ultimately didn't have the outcome that they wanted was that that experience in the industry and knowing what the challenges of the industry are wasn't embedded in that team. That team was like a lot of tech people and some people who at the later stages had come out of the industry. There's a lot of tech people who are just like, you know, fuck it. We're going to do it (laughs) like, yeah, right. We're going to solve this problem. And then they. As, as it unfolded, they're like, wow, this is a big, hairy yeah. problem. So I, right. I like to think that, you know, Anthony is 10 years old. I'm 42 years old. I think Anthony's about 10 years older than me. You know, the the other two engineers that we have on our team, all three engineers that we have on our team are younger than me. I like to think that we have enough perspective now, at least between Anthony and I, and, and of the hundreds and hundreds of conversations that we've had with people across this industry to know whether or not this is the right moment yeah. to be challenging like this. 
I don't know that it would have been the right moment five years ago. Certainly not Interesting. 10 years ago. Yeah, t- timing is is so much. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's, and I don't want to, I, I actually, maybe I should say, I'm like, you know, we just, we just did this calculus that this is the perfect moment so that one day when, <laughs> if we're successful, somebody can go back and rewind this podcast and like say, oh my God, he said it right there. He said it. That's, but, but who knows, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen, but we did see signals. We saw signals that others around at the periphery of the industry, not the, not the architects in the Chewy Center, but the, the building developers and the contractors and the others that were bracketing the architect, they were starting to make moves like we're ready for technology to yeah. just make this easier and faster and smarter. And they were starting to deploy their capital to make that happen as well, which was really the most obvious sign. And the contractors start spending tons of money on R&D yeah. and new technologies and acquisitions and that kind of stuff. You, you know things are changing. And I, and I wouldn't say that that was the same thing five years ago. Interesting. So, okay, so let's talk about slip, slipping off the path. Like this was a, a term that came up on your Hypar Discord Discord server, uh, I think just today, right? But it was slipping off the path of becoming a proper architect, yeah. right? And proper was kind of in quotes. And, and I, the way that this kind of dovetails with what you were just talking about, where we're talking about experience and kind of just, I, let's just call it life experience and what it takes to become a successful architect, however you want to frame that, but kind of in the in the framing that we're using of creating space that matters. How do you flip that? And what, how have you, how is slipped, slipping off the path of architecture and going into software development? Like, what do you bring to software development that others can't? So I, I love this analogy of slipping off the path for a number of reasons. Probably the biggest one is like, First of all, the idea that there's a path, yeah, <laughs> like a that, path that you have yeah. to be on. Second, the no, idea there's that, three paths. We, yeah. we all know that there's three paths in architecture because there's always three schemes. So there must be three paths. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and then second, the idea that you're slipping, like which 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 um, suggests that you're actually trying to get back onto the path. Like you felt yourself going away and you scrabbled yeah. and scraped to try and get back onto the path. You've clearly fallen below. You've fallen below. <laughs> yeah, well, right. Like the, the whole analogy has this underlying sense of like guilt that I shouldn't be thinking oh. about going off the path. And so that's like True. one of the biggest things you're going to fight against. And I, and I guess for me, you know, everything is um, some people believe in a deterministic universe where like everything you do determines everything else. And you're like your course is set for you and it doesn't matter. You're on rails. So you're just going to end yep. up where you go. But I, I actually believe that, you know, there are there are critical decision points where when you make a decision, it sends your life off in one direction. Without those critical decision points, things would be totally different. And I think one of those critical decision points for me, I was in, I was at Parsons um, School of Architecture in New York City getting my graduate degree and looking at practice as my next step, going out into practice. Yep. And then I had um, a structures professor who introduced me to the early works of Bureau Happold, so when Bureau Happold was doing crazy, you know, tensile fabric structures and wooden lath grid shell structures and all this stuff, and it kind of just like dropped a rock in my pond. It was like the people who did that, I mean, it's architecture, it's it's inhabitable right. buildings, but I don't think they ever thought of themselves as being on some path, certainly not as far as a path connotes. Like if you stay on this path for long enough, like you'll be successful working your way up through a firm, like you'll get more letters after your name or you'll get a bigger salary, whatever. It was just like, 
so beautiful and weird that work and and at that moment i was like i want to go work for those guys <laughs> you, you know like I, I i basically at that moment said like i don't think i'm going to go do like the whole end carb work at an architecture firm thing because uh, that's interesting that that work is interesting yeah. work and 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 then from there being exposed to structures and mechanical and environmental design and all the stuff that Bureau Habel did and getting being able to just like be shuttled around between those groups to help them all with different stuff, I think just erased the notion of a path for me. Like before there was a path and I could see it. And then over time, the path just went away. There was no path anymore. It was just like a field and you could go in any direction you wanted because there was no path. But I didn't feel like I'd slipped. I just yeah. felt like I'd been I I'd been given the opportunity to go in any direction I wanted. Yeah. And I think the benefit that I bring to this is again that um first of all that sensitivity having come out of practice like I've delivered projects before um you know big complex crazy projects which is where my love of like complex structures and geometry came from. But then, you know, I was a toolmaker always kind of at heart. So I started making these tools and then I got kind of like pulled out of practice and put into software and what happens when you go into software is immediately customers start inviting you in to talk about their problems when you're a consultant and you work at an engineering firm or architecture firm or whatever you don't go in and bullshit with your no. competition over lunch or whatever maybe maybe you do no. if you're like friends with these people but like you don't go in and have deep dives into their process and everything else because they're your competition right. once you're a software provider you go you into access. all of those guys and they're all competing with each other. And and one of the things that I noticed after doing that for years, you know, as the Dynamo project started up and then we did, we built Dynamo um, uh, and got, you know, and, and gained traction and got the user base built around that. I started going into firms and they would all tell me the same stories. They would all tell me the same challenges. They would all show me the same shortcomings with all the same tools. And it was just kind of like, how is this happening? Like everybody, yeah. everybody's, and then they would all show me their, their version of the solution that they built themselves. Right. And it was like, this firm built that thing and this firm built that thing and that firm built that thing. And it was like, at some point I just kind of broke and I was like, I don't want to go into any more firms and, and have them show me this thing that they've created to solve this problem, which, which by no fault of their own, they think is like the coolest thing in the world yeah, for sure. Cause it solved yeah. their immediate problem and it helped them deliver the project. Right. But in actuality is something that I've seen a hundred times before. I don't ever want that to be the case any ever again. I, I want to at least know that I went away providing a platform so that if that person builds that tool, they can like give it out to the world. Yeah. And then right. somebody doesn't have to solve that problem again. We can we can solve other problems. Yeah, it's a it's a again, it's it's one of those kind of mindset shifts where because of that that comp that competition is bred into us at a very early age and firms operate in such an insulated manner and it's all about them and internal and IP and it's us, it's us, it's ours that you get this replication right everywhere. Like you're talking about and nobody gets better because of it. Unless, you know, somebody might leave a firm and go somewhere else and take something with them. But, but still like that's such a small, small blip on the screen. What you're talking about is pushing everybody forward. And I, I think that's, I'm seeing that happen more and more. I, I see at least the conversation about that happen more and more. You and I have talked about that specifically about, well, what if we and this other firm get together and do this thing together and then show everybody that, hey, it can be done. That would be phenomenal, right? As a as like a case study. 
but we're talking about way bigger than that ultimately. Well, and I, I think, I think part of my, part of my feeling of certainty that this is going to happen is, is that the young generations now have zero desire to be told that they can't share something. Right. Like, this is the sharing generation. Like yep. my daughter, yep, my 12 year old daughter is here at home during the COVID thing, like filming TikToks and, and doing all this crazy stuff so that she can just share it with her friends because they are all right. about being open and sharing and, and building things together. Look at, look at, you know, and they would, they would do that if they weren't in COVID, right? Like that's, yeah. that's important to say because it's not because they're in isolation that they feel compelled to share. They share anyway. Yeah. So right? you take this matter. generation of people who have been grown, growing up on all this technology that's about being explicitly open with everything mm-hmm. you're doing. And it's about building things together. You know, Minecraft is huge because it empowers kids to build incredible places and be together building those things. Roblox has 10 million users because it has a terrible interface, as ugly as sin, this application, but it's super fun for the kids to go in there and like feel like they can build expansive worlds together. Mm. So to take that generation and then suddenly stick them in a firm where you say like you can't talk about the algorithm that you built to do this thing because it's our intellectual property is going to be such a mismatch that they're all just going to chafe at the bit. If they go into that at all, they're just going to get fed up with it and leave. Something's going to something's got to give. So I would like to I would like to at least try and be the platform that's there when that generation is ready to to build. Yeah, for sure. I, I, it's like going into a firm and, and just finding out they have like some social media policy that you're not allowed to share anything ever. Like there are definitely companies like that, right? Like Apple's pretty well known for being really secretive, yeah. doubling down on secrecy. And, and, and that for them is is essential part of who they are. But man, I wonder what it's like to go be one of these people and walk into a company like that and having to go to go silent. I guess you really want to work there at that point versus the alternative. Yeah. And I guess you could argue in the case of Apple, like some of the stuff that they've done over the last decade has been so earth shattering in terms of like how it's moved us. You know, the, the mm-hmm. introduction of the iPhone more than 15 years ago, the, the introduction, the introduction of the iPad, like all this stuff, like they could argue they had to be super secretive about that stuff because it was so differentiating. Like, yeah. okay, I understand that. But the stuff we're talking about inside architecture firms it's right. not differentiating. And, right. and, and you talked a little bit about like, you know, people moving between firms. That's the other thing is like, there's some statistics that have been done on this that I can't, you know, call to mind right now. But, but you also just see it happening, which is, which is the fluidity with which people move between jobs now. You know, obviously, things like COVID and stuff notwithstanding, um, right. uh, which make that challenging. You know, it used to be that you went out and got a good job at a big company and you worked there for 20 years. You got a gold watch and you retired. Yep. Now, you know, there's there's statistics out there about the average amount of time that people stay at at jobs. It's like several years. Yeah, it's the length of the project, right? It, <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, and in architecture. I want that one project in my portfolio. And then if the next project isn't just as juicy, I'm going to go find one there where there is. Yeah, and imagine now that that person takes like every every few years and they're all staggered, right? So there's this constant yeah. flux and outflux of, of talent that's both bring, um, taking your IP because it's in their heads. They, they just right. easily rebuild this stuff and delivering it to potentially your competitor and your competitors, ex-employees coming to you and delivering some of that stuff. So this notion right. that any of that stuff is somehow locked away in a vault and 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 really increases your value, 
I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Somebody has to like convince me otherwise. Yeah. I, I keep saying this, but nobody has like said like, no, you're wrong. Let me show you one example of like, and I've asked for this straight up from big firms. I've said, can you show me the one piece of technological innovation which you've created, which you can demonstrate has driven sales? Right. And they can't. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let, let, we can, we can start winding up here. I think I, I love the conversation and I wanted to kind of bring it back to you a little bit and just talk about like, what, what drives Ian? What, what do you, what are you, uh, what are you made of here when it comes to like helping, like being the intrinsically motivated person that you are? Where does that come from? So I would, I would like to spin a whole yarn about, you know, our open source and open standards and how I'm just like an open person and, and, and everything else. Um, those are means to an end. Like, um, I believe in those things because it's the best way of building software. It's the best way of building a community. It's the best way of building trust, but it's not actually what gets me up every day. The thing that still gets me up every day is like, making people giggle when they see something that we've built, you know, like there's this reaction yeah. when somebody sees something that's like, kind of, kind of feels like the future. <laughs> yeah. They see yeah. That and they're like, Whoa, this is like, I've never seen this before. And that like solves this problem or whatever. That's still what motivates me, I think. And, and w what's really challenging for me now is I'm in this kind of transitional period in my life where as hype art grows, I'm not going to be able to be the guy responsible for the, for eliciting the giggles anymore. I was going to ask you about that to see how, how, what's that like? Yeah. Uh, so, so you, I, I think everybody does go through that at some point, but, but it sounds like you're going through that right this second. Yeah. Cause every, every new team member I, I add to the team, I divest of a certain amount of stuff that I used to do. And, right. and I've, I've heard of a lot of people, CEOs and startups who have like, lost their sense of self in that happening because like you're so tied mm. up in being the person who writes the code and i right. still very much love to do that but i just it would be irresponsible of me to continue to try and be that person when i've hired such talented people to do that stuff yeah and so my my you know it's often been described to me as now i have to transition into the role of cheerleader like i have to make sure mm -hmm. there's enough money in the bank and I have to make sure that we have a mission, a vision, and values, and yeah. and and that the team is executing on those things and excited. And it's a it's an awkward transition, and I'm 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 not I'm not through that transition yet. It will it will probably take. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it remind a conversation I had earlier today where um, you have to transition from being like the first chair violinist to becoming the conductor, right? Like that's a that's a big jump, but it's also kind of like there's lots of great first chair violinists out there. And those are the people you're hiring. Like those are the superstars of whatever. And, and you have to put that trust into their hands that they can do that thing so that you can look at all of the stuff that's going on. And, and I'll say that, you know, when you get accolades yourself for doing something, it's, it's nice and all, but actually when you get accolades, when you're, when your team members get accolades for doing something, you can kind of like you, you, you actually get kind of double accolades because on the one hand, you used to make the thing that made it so that those people can now make the thing. And then you yeah. also hired that person. <laughs> so that right. they can make, so it, it like it, it works out for everybody, you know? Totally. Yeah, totally.
That that's that's awesome. So is there is there anything that you do kind of personally to help yourself kind of perform better or or that you personally kind of hack your own system to to be the best Ian Keo that there is? Um I am I no. Well, yes and no. I would say I I don't I don't know if if you asked other people around me whether or not the things that I'm about to say that I do made me a better person, they might give you different answers because you know, being in my position and doing what what I do, you know, you just have to be very selfish about your time and you have to be very selfish about mm-hmm. you know, so so I I wish that I could be both building this startup and being an amazing dad and everything at the same time. And yeah. sometimes you're being really awesome at one and not so great at the other. And that line mm-hmm. just like moves back and forth from day to day. But one of the things that's been a, a more or less constant in my life for years has been running. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about like how running is a kind of a meditation and everything else. I don't know if that's true. Cause like meditation, I get the sense I haven't actually tried it. My wife keeps telling me I should start meditation. I haven't tried it, but like I get the sense that it's about like calming and centering and emptiness and and all these things. Running is not about that for me, but it is the one thing that I running and surfing are the are kind of the two things that I can do where at some moment while I'm doing them, I recognize that I'm not thinking about this business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I totally get it. That's what rock climbing is to me, right? It's it's you have I think meditation is like this too. Like it's, it's all about being in the moment and being present. And for me, if you're thinking about something else, when you're rock climbing, like you're going to fall off, right? Well, (laughs) I used to rock climb a lot when I was, when I was younger. And then I, you know, I just haven't had the opportunity living in Southern California, but, um, absolutely that idea of like absolute focus, right? You know, I'm standing on this thing that's like smaller than a quarter. It's, it's supporting my entire weight. You know, yeah. and unless I position yeah. my body in exactly the right way to make sure that my center of gravity is pointing directly down on that thing. Right. I'll just slip off the wall. Yeah, it's it's it is definitely that. And it's like a level of problem solving that requires complete focus. Yeah, because it's all about like center of gravity and weight distribution and friction and fitness and all these things kind of add up. But but I, I get what you're saying about running because it it takes you out of that day to day and it allows you like I, I honestly feel like that's what makes people good architects right is different types of experiences and and you can't have different types of experiences if you're continually in the headspace of architecture or software yeah and i think the other the other thing i think that's important about you know i always think like oh i should i should do more weightlifting and build more muscles and everything else and i just don't want to be like that guy i've always just loved running and surfing and i the cardiovascular side of running, you know, people don't say a lot about this in startups and everything else, but like, this is a slog. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to work for five years on this thing. Right. Late nights, early it's mornings, like architecture. <laughs> calls at all hours of the day and night, like, and, yeah. and you have to be fit to keep up yeah. with that and maintain the level of energy that people have ex- expect of you when you present and when you talk to customers and and maintaining that level of energy is something that people sometimes overlook you know and then they find themselves two three years into like starting their startup and they've got 30 extra pounds on them and they're like oh my god and it's harder to take off than it is to put on (laughs) for sure yeah (laughs) so i'm trying to not have to take it off yeah yeah that that's awesome answer i i I love the idea of and, and i think for some people it is it is like 
meditation for sure. Like that's their personal hack or, or whatever. Um, but I think any kind of physical activity that can get your mind off of what you're doing is, is a, a definite advantage. So, so change gears a little bit. Who, who are you listening to? Who are you reading? Like what, who influences your thoughts? So I'm of two minds about reading right now. One, I, I wish I were reading more books and I, I wish I were reading more of the right type of books. So I have this whole list of like books that I'm slowly working my way through, like Andy Grove's High Output Management and like management books, you know, uh -huh. the canon of sort of books that they say as a manager, you're supposed to read these things and, and you know, crossing the chasm right. and these kinds of things. And those are all like on my reading list. But I there's such a struggle to get through sometimes because they're so dry. Yep. So I'm I'm yeah. a um, I'm a real fan of like pulpy science fiction books. And so I'm a, I'm a big John Scalzi cool. fan. And his 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 book, that's the end of I think it's a trilogy uh, just came out called Last Emperor. So I kind of binge on on Scalzi and pulpy sort of science fiction books and then and then go back and read like 10 pages of Andy Grove and then go back and do some, some sci fi stuff. And then yeah. on the listening front. There's so much amazing stuff out there to listen to right now. And it, my, my stuff is a mix between technical stuff. Like I listen to um, the engineering, uh, uh, engineering daily podcast. And I, but then I also listen to like a lot of startup stuff. Like I listen to Reed Hoffman's uh, startup masters of scale and a bunch of others, you know, so, cause there's, and then a, a, a small amount of political stuff. I try and stay out of the political stuff. Cause right now it's just, it's just like a river of depressing uh you know, awfulness. Yeah. I saw, I saw a, uh, a quote recently that said, uh, to call this a dumpster fire would both be a disservice to dumpsters and yes. fire. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true. <laughs> and it's, it's actually one of the things that's, so I'm a big Twitter guy too. And I, and I've traditionally used Twitter to talk with our right. community of people who are building and designing yeah. and, and analyzing stuff. Oh, it's hard to open. Well, yes, because I tried to cultivate over the years. I was like, I don't want anything political in my Twitter feed. And Part of the reason we started the Hypar Discord server yeah. was so that I could be pretty sure that I could control the amount of that kind of garbage. The problem with Twitter is that like one person yeah. retweets something political and somebody else retweets it. Now, my feed isn't about people talking about cool stuff in our industry anymore. Now it's just about politics and not just our politics, yeah. but like politics around the world. It's like right? your email like, inbox. I have to know all about British politics because like a lot of the people that I'm friends with are British. And so that's what they talk about. Yeah. There's some great podcasts out there right now. Uh, if you're a fan of 80s, 90s rock, uh, of course. have you heard of the band Scorpions? I'm like, a big, I'm like a big hair band guy going way <laughs> so there's back. This, there's, uh, there's this podcast out right now called Winds of Change. You got to write that down because uh, it's it's a... It's a, I think it's eight episodes and they're, they're on like episode four right now, uh, unless you're on Spotify, I think you can listen to the whole thing. But, um, it's about this conspiracy theory that the CIA wrote the song winds of change to bring down, uh, the USSR and come to get East and I've West Germany to, uh, to and shake it is hands. incredible. <laughs> Even the premise it's of awesome. it, um, uh, it's incredible. It is. It is. Well, they had recommended, I think the guys, I listened to Pod Save America. That's one of my one political things. And the guys on Pod Save America, I think, had recommended that because it was, it was you know, produced by a friend of theirs. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, okay. So last, where, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to online? And, and just to let everyone know, all the, all the links for everything that we've talked about will be in the show notes for this episode. So how about it? 
So we we are primarily on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I'm Ikeo, I-K-E-O-U-G-H, and uh, Hypar is Hypar AEC. Um, on Instagram, we're also Hypar AEC. You can find us at hypar.io. You go to the site right now, you can sign up for free. There's no cost to use Hypar. Um, try it out and play. Um, uh, we'd love to have you. And um, our, we've recently, within the last month or so, started a, a Discord server um, for having more focused kind of conversation, not only around Hypar, but about everything in the industry. So we have channels on there like about the future of the profession. Yeah. We're talking about exactly the kinds of stuff we talked about today. I love that channel. Um, and so, and, but then that conversation we're trying to cultivate just around, we're talking about either Hypar or we're talking about this industry. We're not talking about politics or we, we kind of loosen it up to talk a little bit more about technology right. and technologies that are aligned with this industry. So there's a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning, that kind of stuff. So it's a it's a great place if you drop by and it's a, a, a real community of like super smart people there that we put together in a short time. I was going to say like if, if you want to just eavesdrop on some amazing conversations by some really talented people, there's there's some incredible stuff going on on that. So yeah. I, thank you for starting that, by the way. I mean, that it's worth saying out loud that like that's a cool thing for sure. Absolutely. Thank you. And and one of the things, one of the other reasons that we did it was because, you know, one of the successes that we had at the beginning of Dynamo was people's direct access to people working on Dynamo. That was so powerful yeah. for people to be able to engage in that way. So one of the things we do is we have a, several development channels on there where we're posting like daily screenshots of stuff that's inside Hypar that we're working on. And we're trying to be as open as possible about all the stuff we're building. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like sparks conversation you know, um, and that's, uh, that's great. So we're doing one right now. We're doing like the Revit beta cause we're building some new Revit functionality. Uh, so, so if you're interested, come and come and drop some comments in there. And I love how you guys are even like, I know Anthony's really active in the channel where you guys are talking about business model, right? You, yeah. You're very transparent about, you know, like we, we kind of, we're, we're feeling this out. We're going to see where this goes. What do you guys think? And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Like how many subscription SaaS models do you software as a service models? Do you know in AEC that people are actively using right now that aren't either Autodesk or Trimble? Yeah. So, so we want to make sure that whatever we put out there matches with users needs and expectations. And isn't just some like, Oh, we heard it would be good to charge 79 95 like every month. Yeah. Um, because ultimately, we want to drive the cost of Hypar down to the place where, for most users, it's free. Yeah. And for for business users and people who are producing tools on there that then generate revenue, um, that's where we actually make our margins so that we can keep everything else free. Right now, the idea is we'll have some subscription at the lower end. It reminds me of like those old, like the very first reality shows, like behind the music or whatever. This is behind the startup. Like it's very much like a very open conversation about what's going on on the day to day development process, business model shooting the shit like there's lots of great conversations that are happening on there and i i think i was on there earlier there was about 30 people on there who were just kind of hanging out like obviously people are just letting it run while they're working on other stuff but it just reminds me of the old days of like hotline right like on hotline servers yeah. or whatever and, and people who are like-minded or like purposed or whatever just hanging out and chatting about cool stuff it's also a new technology that I didn't know anything about. And and one of the younger guys on my team was like, we should try a discord. And I'm not like a gamer. So I didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't know that it was for that and everything else. And, um, you know, it has these like live chat things where you can, so we've, we've even toyed with the idea of just having like office hours on Friday. Yeah. You just open it up and you sit in there. And if people want to come by and chat about Hypar or the industry or whatever, that we could do that. I don't know. We're trying everything. That's so cool. 
Well, thank you very much for hanging out today. I think it's been a a really valuable conversation for me. Hopefully, uh, we've had fun here today on your side, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.